I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Jason Radisson, the founder and CEO at Shift One. Jason has a Bachelor of Arts from the College of Holy Cross with honors in political science. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Economics at the University of Göttingen in Germany and started his PhD at Harvard in Economics. Jason has had an incredible career working at McKinsey, Uber 99, an Uber competitor in Brazil, and other stops along the way that get him today to where he is as the CEO and founder of Shift One. They have a pretty big and audacious task in front of them. They're helping lead a revolution for frontline workers solving the world's largest employment gaps with technology. I think this conversation is going to be very informative, so let's jump right in. Jason Radisson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm super excited to be able to chat with you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, I've uh, been doing a little research on your background, and my goodness, you have quite the pedigree, uh, educational background, a Bachelor of Arts from uh, Holy Cross in uh, economics, and then you've gone on, you're a Fulbright Scholar, you've done studies in Europe, and then you've started a PhD at Harvard, you've done some studies at a Stanford Graduate School of Business. And then to take all that fine education, take a look at some of the places that you've worked globally. I mean, it's been a, uh, it's kind of like the gold standard. My goodness, you've worked at McKinsey, you've worked at Uber, you've worked at all sorts of tech startups. And now you find yourself as a CEO and founder of a brand new uh, startup, uh, Shift One. And I want to hear a little bit more about this because it's absolutely fascinating. It's solving the world's largest employment gaps with technology. But before we get into all of that, I just give me a little of your origin story. Like, who are you? How did you decide to go through all these various career pivots and leaps? And what brings you to be a passionate CEO and leader today to try to solve the world's largest employment gaps with technology? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for that introduction, Robert. And, um, you know, I I came up in, in probably... Um, one of the most difficult ways possible. Um, a child of a 16-year-old single mom, and um, you know, I think uh, that experience um, can go many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly uh, the odds the odds are against you. And um, we had uh, we had a really strong uh, work ethic, and I think fundamentally um, a philosophy and a family culture of. Uh, putting one foot in front of the other and, and succeeding through hard work. Um, and so my earliest experiences were really all about uh, how you kind of bootstrap life and, and work um, your way through things and, and all kinds of adversity. And, uh, you know, I saw my mom on that journey, um, you know, working all kinds of jobs and putting herself through school, eventually through teacher's college. Um, and, you know, in my own education, I worked all along the way, um, to fund my own education. And for me, um, I think the practical experience of having a job while you're a student, while you're a high school student, while you're a a college student, a grad student, I think that really grounds you in sort of the practical side of education. We all, you know, enjoy expanding our horizons in education in other ways, um, you know, just the intellectual growth that comes with it. Um, 
But when you have to work your way through school, it really gives you that grounding in, am I getting skills that the market needs and that eventually that will help me reach a better standard of living uh, for myself and my family. Uh, so, you know, that really was, was my earliest, my very, very earliest experiences. And I think it all lends itself super well to the job of uh, startup CEO, startup founder. Because um, that's a big part of the job is making sure that you're successful and you're delivering what the world really practically needs uh, at every point in time as you're building the company. So I would imagine that grit, that hard work that you mentioned, the per perseverance, those are all things that you learned and had to learn at a very early age. You carried that through your educational journey. I think you were probably motivated and inspired to get a great education to try to have a, a better life for yourself. Before we pivot into maybe some of the mentoring and the coaching that you got in your um, professional career, because I would imagine having worked at McKinsey and Uber, and you, you were able to rub shoulders with incredible individuals, thought leaders. I'd love to hear the advice that they were giving you along the way to mold you into a, an entrepreneur. But even before we get there, was, was your mom uh, and other people uh, around you early in life, were they advocates for furthering education and were they mentoring and coaching you and, and inspiring you to do great things in your life? I mean, I, I, I don't think that you do great things in life without a coach or a mentor, someone helping you along the way, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. And I think, I think it's a lot of the... Um, when you grow up, uh, I think part of the way I grew up, um, it's it's you have this proximity to 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 work and sort of you develop a very different work ethic, um, you know, than you might in another circumstance because because you're that close to it, um, you know. And I mean, like literally, you know, I in terms of childcare, childcare looks very different when you grow up in poverty and. You know, when uh, you only have a parent and 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 no no network, um, the network becomes the people uh, sort of in the community. It's the the neighbors upstairs um, in your apartment building. It's uh, in my case, um, you know, the professors at my mom's college uh, who watched me. Um, you know, it's these kinds of things, or or let me go to classes. Um, so. You know, my, my mom didn't have childcare. So um, it's these kinds of things that very, very early on, you start to understand that a big part of what adults do is they work and, and you see it. You're not sequestered off in, you know, a playgroup or something like that. A big part of that was my childcare. A lot of it was just being in a work environment um, and, and seeing that, having that from a super early age, having that from two, three, four uh, on, I was I was in that environment. Uh, so I thought that was natural, and um, you know, for me, uh, that I think that that proximity and and there's a lot of individual, almost too many individuals to count that were all part of that environment um, in my early days, and it really truly was that community, that village that that helped to raise me. Wow. And then moving on into your professional career, I mean, you. Uh, the various institutions that you were at, I mean, you, you were able to rub shoulders with, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, the folks at McKinsey. I mean, it is known as the benchmark. I mean, I've read multiple books on, on McKinsey, being able to get hired there and work there. I mean, they hire only the best of the best I mean, going to schools like the Holy Cross and then 
you know, do, being a Fulbright scholar and starting a PhD at Harvard and, you know, graduate work at Stanford School of Business. I mean, th these are iconic institutions. And so what are you learning as you are progressing through the ranks educationally um, there with the people that you're meeting and the, the entrepreneurs? I, mean, I, I, I can't wait to hear your, your, your stories at Uber because, my goodness, I mean, that, that they've literally just transformed the, the global economy. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I think, I think um, you know, the, the path of education I was um, – I was fortunate. I think, in particular, um, uh, you know, we had we had some ways, and, and the system worked uh, when I was coming up. In in some ways, there were opportunities that um, you know there were people in the educational system looking out for you. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and I don't I don't think this is evenly distributed. I think I was really lucky. Um, you know, I grew up in uh, in Massachusetts, in uh, kind of you know not. Boston or Cambridge or something like that, but out in a hill town. Um, and there were people that um, helped move me along. And mm -hmm. I was in, you know, sort of these uh, uh, curricula that that provided mentorship. Uh, I had uh, engineering mentors uh, in elementary school. Wow. I had other uh, kind of programs um, that that the system provided for poor kids who um, who were doing really well, um, and provided us extra opportunities. Um, I don't know, you know, if I had been, you know, there are so many other regions of the country where that wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, so I think, I think that was super fortunate. That set a number of things, uh, sort of, uh, in, in motion, um, testing really worked well for me. Um, you know, a lot of times when you come from a school system that doesn't have any resources, um, you know, if you can get a great test result, um, you know, that can help you get into, into uh, institutions and, and really open up uh, other doors for you. And that was really the case with me. Um, and I have to say, um, you know, Holy Cross is a very special place. Um, it's, it's unusual to have a school that provides that much support to kids that are coming from backgrounds like, like me with that kind of quality. Um, and that kind of uh, financial and, and other support uh, was a great community. And that, that really is what kind of, um, you know, educationally really opened up everything for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you've, made, you've certainly made the best of all the opportunities that have come your way. And I know we're going to get into why you're so passionate about your current role at Shift One. And it, it strikes me as I've done some research on what you're doing and the things that you're passionate about. I mean, your origin story as a young boy coming up probably like as you said in maybe in poverty uh, very on the on the razor's edge watching your mom navigate to do the best that she possibly can working various jobs getting education it, you know all, you have a deep empathy for i think people um and in, in their career and people who are struggling to, to make ends meet and here we are today in a, a changing global economy uh the the workforce i mean the economy is changing so rapidly and people are having a hard time to upskill and, and, and stay abreast of all these various changes. And it, it strikes me that this great empathy that you have comes from your background and uh, it is really helping you and giving you insight into how to help uh, this, this modern workforce and uh, for you to lean into this problem. 
Hundred percent. Yeah, I think I think fundamentally, you know, a talent is really is really evenly distributed throughout the world. There are talented people everywhere, um, all parts of society, all different countries and geographies, um, and it really um, is one of the main motivations of our of our company and of our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, fundamentally, everybody has that 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 they start out with and that can be formed into a better life into the career skills and the kinds of things that can help them improve um, their standard of living and and you know uh, their own family and and you know the, the the folks in their family that come after them so I I believe fundamentally in in providing that opportunity um, to people regardless of where they start in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has been a, a main motivation of, of Shift One and, and the mission that we're on. Well, we're going through this massive transformation in the labor markets, and it, it feels like nobody's been able to fix it. And this is an area that you're working on. What are the things that you see? I mean, you, I read all the time. I hear that entrepreneurs yeah. have an insight. They ha- they see something. They understand something that other people don't see, and they're leaning into that area. That's what you're doing right now with Shift One. What is your insight? What do you see? Well, fundamentally, we've got, you know, we've got this opportunity. We've got this historic point in time where, you know, there's just a real imbalance that we're all talking about. It's, you know, it's it's become popular conversation in the last couple of years about there not being enough frontline workers in the world, um, particularly in a rich country like the U.S., um, where we really struggle with things. Um, you know, there are a lot of structural reasons why that's the case. There are demographic reasons. There's a participation kind of issue uh, in the economy more broadly these days, where a lot of folks are just choosing to either retire earlier or just sit out uh, the workforce uh, for, for the pandemic. And now we're post-pandemic for the most part, and we still have a lot of this behavior. So when we... You know, we were seeing this already. Obviously, the worker shortages didn't just emerge. They were there and they were there in a number of sectors even before the pandemic. And and it's just all gotten worse. Um, I think our insight is that technology can make the labor markets more efficient. And the technology that we're talking about, it's existed for a while. We're really applying if you if you look at labor marketplaces and fundamentally you can argue that you know a company like Uber or a company like Rappi or DoorDash these companies are basically labor marketplaces and if you look at these models we really are sort of building on the rails that the e-commerce industry had already developed there was already you know broadly speaking ways of bringing markets together to bring transparency into markets to move those markets to the internet, to move those markets to mobile applications. We're doing essentially the same thing with labor uh, that e-commerce did with retail. Uh, and I think in our you know, particular case, I saw the opportunity to take that same kind of technology that we're using to employ drivers to bring it to the more kind of traditional roles in frontline work across the country. And we started in light industrial, you know, logistics, uh, retail, manufacturing, uh, kind of the traditional blue collar roles. And now 
as we expand, we're expanding into some of the other areas of the economy that are adjacent. We're getting into clean technology, we're getting into healthcare uh, and travel nursing and some other parts of the economy. But it all goes back to making that market more efficient and using cloud technologies, using modern platforms uh, to help people find work, to help companies find workers that are out there. Uh, fundamentally what we're trying to do. So would you use labor market, gig economy, freelancer revolution? Or do you think that all of those are interchangeable? And um, it, I've heard you mention the labor market and, and the, sim, the things that like DoorDash, DoorDash was a revolution, Uber was a revolution. These, and you, if I look back in history, like the various jobs, part-time jobs that were available to people 20, 30 years ago, radically different today. There's so many ways that a person can be a part of the gig revolution or be a part of the, the freelancer economy. And technology has really opened that up. So I, I just want to make sure I'm connecting those dots. Do you yeah. feel that all of those are, are interconnected or are interchangeable? 100%, 100%. So, I mean, we make, you know, some, some slight differentiations there. Um, you know, I think, I, I think on the gig side, we think about taking a job and job and bring it into space, um, and letting people sign up for different parts of that job. Okay. You know, working a few hours here or there, working one half of the job while somebody else works a different half of the job. There are a lot of things that are possible once you have a platform in place um, and you have a way of really efficiently connecting workers and jobs. Um, in our world, we've really chosen in Shift One to to focus more on, you know, full time and 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 beyond, sort of full time or jobs that are full time plus overtime, uh, the kind of jobs that, you know, can put kids through school, that can pay a mortgage, that can become a career path, and so we're more focusing on that part of the economy and the, the folks that are really looking to get into a profession, start on the entry level. Maybe there's no schooling required, just a little on-the-job training, and then over time, uh, get those degrees, get those certifications so that they can level up. Um, you know, it's not to say that some of these jobs can't also be broken into smaller gigs, but for the most part, um, what we're working in is full-time. That, that is a great way of helping clarify my question. You, you've given me some new insight here on uh, how to distinguish between the three of those. So would examples of that full-time frontline worker, uh, I've been on your website, it looks like it would also be like service workers, maybe in the restaurant industry, it could also be service workers in um, other types of trades, warehouse. Wh who, what are the, like the sectors that yeah. you feel are like, this is the sweet spot of how we're servicing employees in these particular sectors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're super focused on, on travel, frontline skilled travel work. So travel nursing being one of the kind of the classic jobs there. Um, field engineers being a classic job there. Um, these are booming parts of the economy and some of the toughest labor problems in the economy. Um, particularly if you look at like what's underneath it, you know, the healthcare uh, industry and sort of the structural things of boomers retiring and we have you know at the same time we're struggling to have enough nurses in our economy we've got all this booming demand for health care and health services um with field engineering a lot of that is coming from clean technology and environmental concerns and sort of the switch that 
um, you know, different states and jurisdictions and power companies, frankly, are making the cleaner and cleaner forms of energy. Um, even just in the early days, as it seems that we are in a lot of those transitions, those are some of the fastest growing jobs in the country. If you look at windmill technology, uh, uh, windmill technologies, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, engineering jobs that support that, uh, solar technologies, installation technicians and engineers, um, and even ge geothermal as a uh, as a booming new part of the economy. So those are those are I would say our main our primary focus. Um, on the entry level, and these can be a lot of the gateway jobs to other things, mm -hmm. we work in manufacturing with machine operations, machine operators, uh, the kinds of folks that keep production running, uh, production machinery running, um, industrial robotics running, uh, those kinds of technical mm -hmm. jobs. And then um, on our very entry level, uh, we go all the way down to you know somebody who is just coming out of high school and getting their first job in a warehouse um, and working their very first logistics job. Um, and kind of everything in between, there are a lot of different jobs in there. There are 40 or 50 different job classes that we work in and um, they all are um, you know, somewhere in that range um, from that very entry level, just out of high school or technical high school, uh, all the way up to somebody who has a master's of engineering or a master's of, of nursing. So would this be considered a dual-sided marketplace, similar to some of the things that you would have done at Uber early on. In case studies I've read about Uber is that there's these challenges. You needed to make sure that you were growing the, the public demand side in relation to also the supply side of vehicles or drivers. You had, you had to grow both of those together. You were solving problems on both sides of the ledger. And this, and with shift one, are you, what is the friction that you're removing for the employee or the benefit you're giving them? And what's the friction that you're removing and the benefit that you're giving the business? I'm imagining there's something on both sides of that, that ledger. Correct? Yeah, totally. Totally. To the first part of your question, hundred percent. And, and I think those of us who, you know, were operators, um, in the early gener earlier generation of companies, what we would say is the mark of a really good general manager, regional general manager, country manager in that world is how, good you and the team are at balancing both sides. Because if you balance both sides, it takes very little capital to grow a really nice, robust marketplace. If you're imbalanced, you're spending a lot of money. You're either paying money to incentivize drivers to get out there and work, or you're paying money to get consumers to use the platform. Uh, if you're balanced, it just grows and it's, and it's beautiful. Um, in our world, um, you know, it's, it's, our our demand side is is very b2b um so it's it, a little bit different in that you know we've got a sales cycle and we're working with um you know for the most part big national companies who have facilities in different different states and different regions um and typically what we do even on the demand side is we really focus on their toughest problems um you know we're a startup in this phase we're coming from, you know, sort of the, um, the extreme environment of the gig economy and, you know, uh, some of the stuff we've been through. Uh, and so, you know, if there's one thing that we really can sort of, uh, you know, differentiate on in that moment for our clients, it's finding workers when other people can't and finding really good workers um, and putting together teams in ways that other people can't. Uh, so typically, when we start to work with a national client, 
will focus on their factories, on their facilities, on their hospitals that have the worst possible problems, and then sort of help solve their biggest pain points. And then, you know, we sort of move on from there to, to other secondary sites. Um, so that's, that's how we're sort of providing the balance in the marketplace. And if it's travel jobs, what's so nice about travel jobs is you're not limited to any one area, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, you can sort of get the supply from all over the country um, to be able to fill those different spots of demand. So um, that's a little bit of our preference. Uh, travel is even more efficient uh, than local work. And then local work, we really, you know, we pride ourselves on and we have uh, some great capabilities just around being able to get together way more workers than are needed. And then, you know, we can be uh, super precise in terms of who we're deploying and how we curate those teams that we deploy to our clients. Well, this this next question might be uh, moving into some the realm of politics a little bit, but I'm I'm curious since you're working in this space, if you have your finger on the pulse of this. As I have talked to uh, CEOs and business owners around the country, and specifically the current labor shortages that many of them, and this is this is not just you know, frontline workers in the restaurant space. I mean, we've all gone out to a restaurant and said, hey, be, be, you know, we apologize, be patient with us. You know, we don't have enough staff. We've seen these signs everywhere. And you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier as, you know, people are looking to fill the, these very, various uh, important roles. Uh, but as I've been talking with these business leaders, uh, two things that come up, that there will be there are two hot button issues. There, there's... Um, individuals who say, Bob, I can't get people to come in. I've got, whether it's in the steel industry or the restaurant industry, uh, the agricultural industry, I've frontline workers that I desperately need, they're not there. They're, there's pe the people have just gone home and they're not willing to actually do that job. And there's, there's been some interesting conversations where it's been around uh, U.S. citizens, right? You're just like, eh, you know what? They just, uh, young kids today coming up out of high school, or whatever, don't want to do those jobs, which then leads us into the next part of the conversation of my goodness we bob we've we've uh, we've closed the borders and you know the united states desperately needs you know the 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 immigration pipelines uh, not just the h1b1 visas of tech workers in silicon valley but we need the you know the frontline workers in a, a whole slew of uh, career fields that if we don't have you know that that pipeline of talent, the United States economy doesn't function as as properly. What are you noticing, and and what is there, you know, yeah. advice that you would have on that? Like, what can we do for our own, for you know, U.S. citizens, or to inspire uh, young people into some of the trades? And you know, what advice would you have for politicians who are in D.C. making decisions on the, the needs of American businesses and the our our immigration? Yeah, hundred um... percent. You know, and I think I, I think everybody kind of comes down where they come down in terms of spending and how much government program work we could do to incentivize different 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 parts of that of that question of that solution. Um, what I would say is we are, you know, one we are definitely seeing declining workforce participation, particularly in younger folks mm -hmm. um, who should be filling those entry level jobs. Um, 
you know, there are some opportunities around that, including bringing uh, older folks back into the workforce and, and bringing them into some of those jobs um, and making those uh, jobs the kind of jobs that they would want to have. Um, we see, um, you know, we work with clients all the time on wages and job conditions. Um, it's, I would say, approaching 100% of our deployments have some degree of wage adjustment, some degree of uh, sort of workplace um, uh, uh, modifications and things, schedule modifications. Um, and it really puts us in a great position to be able to provide the client that kind of guidance. You know, we're at 80% filled on second shift. If we, you know, could pull these two or three different levers, we have another 50 candidates off to the side that we think would would be interested in this work we could bring in to do this job. Um, so, you know, I think it's part of it. Part of it is just there's there's some worker levers. And then I think a big part of the change really is on the employer side and sort of evaluating the market. And we get, you know, I think people just have the momentum that they had. And a lot of these decisions were made before the pandemic where, you know, the job is what it is. It has the hours that it has. Um, and oftentimes it's just small modifications you got to make. And then, you know, it becomes attractive to a, a whole lot uh, more folks. Um, I think that's part of it. I think we're in a unique position to be able to provide for workers who are kind of on the fence and entry level. We're able to provide them more of a prospect of a career, career ladder and career development that is a little bit more enticing than if I'm just going to go get a warehouse job for a couple months. Um, you know, they can stay with us and they, and they can develop further. Um, so it's we, a combination really uh, of of different different levers locally that I think really need to be deployed. Um, and then some of the things that are a little bit more out of the box, we're getting into relocation programs. Um, and generally those are kind of hard to fund at the very entry level. Um, entry level guys don't often need as much support. You know, it might just literally be their suitcase and their car that they have to drive a few states over. Um, but being able to provide enough assistance and enough job security that it makes it worthwhile to somebody to move over to where the work is is and and where they're needed. Um, so there are a few things there that that can also be done. Um, and then I, I what I would say about the whole question of immigration is it's a huge opportunity. We've been super active with the Department of Labor on H two B, and in particular we 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 do the same kind of work in Latin America in Colombia, in Peru, and we've, we've uh, been doing a little bit of work in, in Mexico um, in that challenging environment. Um, and, you know, what I can say about those markets is they still have high unemployment, um, and you've got a lot of folks who would uh, be thrilled to have the opportunity to work in the U.S. Um, on some kind of uh, a guest worker program, maybe come over for a couple of years, um, and contribute and take up a lot of these jobs that aren't being filled, and particularly that might be in a region that's very hard to fill, you know, that might be in rural Kansas or rural Ohio or some of the other places that we work. Um, I think that program is really, it's the beginning of something. It's just for my, you know, experience and sort of what we've been seeing in our company, it's much too small these days. Uh, it's 30 something thousand. 
uh, twice a year, uh, that program could probably be a million people um, and it would still uh, be fully subscribed. Uh, it, it, it just uh, mm -hmm. runs out so quickly. And, you know, I think it's, there are so many hoops to kind of jump through. Mm -hmm. You have to prove that a job is very short duration as an employer. Um, you have to prove that the job has a very strong seasonal nature. And even though it's not an agricultural program, you still have to prove that, you know, there's this uh, extreme sort of temporary need. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're at the point in the economy where we should be able to say, you know what, in this particular state, we're a million workers short. So we're going to, you know, import 200,000 workers and we're going to keep them for two or three years. Yeah. Um, you know, similar to the way that some of Europe did uh, following the Second World War, uh, where, you know, some, some of the countries that were short workers just yeah. literally imported millions of workers to fill those empty slots. I think we're literally at that point uh, right now in the U.S. I'd love to see the H2B program expanded to be much more broader in much more broad in scope. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would help the economy tremendously. Yeah, I, I do as well. Um, a moment ago, you, you mentioned that people who are engaging with you, one of the benefits is that they, they're looking at the, the engagement with Shift One as a way in which they could have a longer-term relationship or maybe a career. And I'd like to double-click on that thought process. Let, let's use like a pretend an, a large Amazon warehouse in Kansas is uh, putting job, job applications out there. So a, a person could just like, I'm going to apply and go directly to Amazon, or I could apply, have a partnership through Shift One. What's the difference? How are you... I'm assuming that you're, you're giving them some skills, some training, and a relationship with you is providing them a better opportunity for career progression and career. Help explain a little bit of that. Yeah, 100%. So what I would say about logistics is, um, you know, it uh, it is an area of our economy that um, doesn't have a lot of rungs on the ladder. It has a tremendous entry level. Uh, it's a great first job for a lot of folks. Just you know, get the skills of going to work and uh, you know working a full schedule and earning a paycheck and paying taxes and going through kind of all the the, the normal the normal early career experiences. Uh, but there aren't a lot of places you can go from there. It takes a while uh, to get up to a leadership position. Um, it uh, has a limited number of machine operation uh, roles. You can learn to drive a forklift. Uh, you can go a bit on, on that path. Um, you know, it, it, in that sense, the logistics industry isn't the quickest way to sort of advance in your career, um, nor kind of like the most sure way of advancing in your career. And so what we're able to offer is you know, an entry level wherever, but then also opportunities to switch industries, to switch verticals, um, and to find some spots that have more runs on the ladder. And I would highlight there, particularly manufacturing. You know, you know, we've been going through, we're now uh, a couple decades into sort of the evolution of e-commerce. We've got a lot of log logistics related to that. Um, we're doing less manufacturing at home uh, than we have, uh, you know, historically. So there's less manufacturing opportunity than there used to be. But even that said, the typical manufacturing environment has so, so many more rungs on the ladder than a logistics environment. And so for that reason, 
we naturally offer services to both types of clients and for our workers, we're able to sort of swing them in and out of different opportunities in both of those verticals. Those are two verticals really, really closely aligned and really a spot where we see that happen all the time. We bring somebody from an entry-level logistics role as you know, maybe a packing, packing shipments or maybe doing receiving and things like that into a machine operation role with more responsibility and more technical uh, needs and skill building on the manufacturing side. And then we're even able to bring them back over into logistics, maybe in a supervisory role and some other things. So it's just the more, it's like anything else, you know, in career pathing, the more opportunities you have uh, to develop skills and deep skills, the better off the outcomes are gonna be. And that's really what we're seeing. Oh, it's brilliant. I love the way that you're tackling that problem because if I'm a manager at let's say Amazon, I'm really not concerned about career progression for a whole bunch of people. I just, I've got jobs in the warehouse. I need it done. I need packages going through my, that is my main concern. And so it's like, Hey, it's, and there's a lot of people in the economy like, I desperately need to pay my bills. I need to make ends meet this month and they will, they'll sign up for that role. But once they're there, it's one and done. You're kind of stuck working and partnering with you on the other side. You're like, Hey, I want to be able to help you get that role. But I also have a longer time horizon and I know of all these other needs out here in society. And, you know, when you're ready to pivot, when you're ready to upskill, I can help you move to another spot where you can have career progression. I would imagine that's probably something uh, your mom was looking for early on in her career. And, you know, it had shift one been there when your mom was coming up through the system that her pathway and progression would have been easier. I know that in the conversations that we've had prior to this in the email exchanges, one of the things that you're passionate about is upskilling, right? So with automation and everything that's happening right now, we're seeing a lot of frontline work. We're seeing it, uh, automation in uh, restaurants. Uh, it, this is going to, there's going to be, you know, as Mark Andreessen has famously said, software's eating the world, right? So there's going to be a lot of job destruction with automation. What should people be doing right now to upskill why are you passionate about it and where are there areas of opportunity? That's a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, that's, you know, going to be, I think when we look back on this period, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to see not only a real increase in automation, but we're going to see um, an evolution in the front line in a way we haven't seen, um, you know, uh, previously. And, and that for me is these jobs as they get automated away, you know, and it's we see it in our in our client sites all the time. You know, a a manual line where you have twenty guys who are taking parts off of machines and putting them into boxes. Those are some of the first things that get automated away, right? It's you have a, a large number of people doing an unskilled task, um, and they get automated away. And then there's a sophisticated piece of machinery there, and you still need you know, three guys, one in each shift to, to, to run that machine, uh, to troubleshoot that machine, to optimize that machine uh, and its output. And that's the story that's unfolding here is, you know, those, those really entry-level jobs, they're, they're still gonna be there. They're just, they're gonna be two or three skill levels higher. They're gonna be at least semi-skilled, if not skilled. Uh, they're gonna have higher requirements um, and they're gonna pay a lot better. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's where we're headed. And that's why I think it's, it's just where we need to be as a company, we can't sort of, 
build a company around unskilled work, the unskilled work is really just in an on-ramp. It's a first rung of the ladder for our guys. And as our workforce progresses, really our job is to get them into those higher skills as soon as possible, get them into those skilled machine roles, uh, machine operation roles, get them into engineering roles, um, get them into healthcare roles, um, you know, if that's their passion. That's brilliant. Are there things that you would be recommending for uh, members, you know, in those entry level jobs right now to to be doing a bit with the uh, with Coursera, edX? I mean, there's so many different places you can go right now to start learning a little bit about whether it's you know computer languaging or computer programming or various skills. Are there things that people can be doing to be like, I know I'm going to want to progress. I know I, I want to get out of the, my particular line of work. And I want to start stretching my mind, start exercising my, my, my mind a little bit to, to understand where this economy is going. 100%. You know, short term, it's um, taking a look at the machines that are around you and some of the automated processes that are around you um, and taking an interest and, and expressing that curiosity in terms of how, uh, how the plant or how the operation is running. Um, you know, those are the kinds of, of, of thoughts. And if you're see- seeking those opportunities, those are the kinds of roles uh, that can immediately give you a big bump up. Okay. Um, you know, it could be for somebody who's packing boxes, it could literally be learning to drive the, the forklift um, on that particular line. Um, you know, a little bit more medium long term, it's definitely getting that associate or bachelor's degree. Um, and the associate's degrees, you know, that we're seeing, I mean, definitely on anything on mechanical and electrical, uh, anything on healthcare or nursing, um, those are really, those are the slots, those are the opportunities of the next 20 years in our economy. Um, those are really those entry-level jobs of the future, getting yourself to that point. And then from there, you know, you're in the job, you have an associate's, um, you're getting a lot of more challenging career development and cool stuff to work on mm-hmm. and much higher pay. And from there, you know, getting as, as far up the ladder as you can, if you can then go on to get that bachelor's of nursing or go on to get that, that mechanical engineering, uh, uh, MS, um, you know, whatever it is, that's, that's really the path as, as we see it in, in the entry level. One of the most important skills has got to be becoming a lifelong learner, being passionate about learning. I've heard multiple CEOs say, Bob, one of the, the key things that young people need to do is learn how to learn and then how to apply those skills as quickly as possible because they're going to be constantly, you know, acquire a new skill, implement it, acquire a new skill, implement it. So it's everything that you're saying here is resonating with things I've heard from other uh, business owners and leaders. You know, Jason, one of the things that is so impressive about your career is how many unicorns you've worked with. What have you, uh, you know, that's a term we hear quite frequently in the, the VC world, uh, Jason Calacanis and, you know, the guys on the All In podcast or other places co- constantly talking about the unicorns in the, in the new global economy. Uh, since you've had an opportunity to work with so many of them, uh, what are some of the secrets that you've learned? What's the, what's the secret of building a unicorn in a, in a great company? Yeah, 100%. Well, I, you know, I think it, I think it, um, it begins with um, with with really having uh, a transformational perspective and, and transformational technology, um, and you know, then I think what really differentiates one unicorn to the next, or one potential unicorn, 
uh, you know, to, to the companies that have successfully scaled, it really comes down to how you manage growth and, and broader societal change because you are out there with your city teams as, as really change agents in uh, local politics, in the local economy. Um, and doing that, doing that really well, having a unique perspective on it um, and being planful and um, really looking for transformative win-win situations. Um, and, I, you know, I think one of the things that kind of differentiates me in scaling is um, I think with time, I've sort of grown to have an appreciation for, um, you know, sort of picking the markets and picking the spots to bet on in scaling the company. Mm. In other words, you know, you can look for, you know, sort of total coverage um, of a country, of a geography, uh, but you can also choose the order of cities and markets that you go after, sort of the order of different segments that you go after. And there's a lot in sort of how you uh, decide to approach the scale up and a lot of that strategy work um, that really goes a long way to making it an efficient and successful uh, scale up. Um, that's what I would really say in terms of sort of, you know, my track record in, in growing unicorns. Um, a lot of it comes down to picking which markets you play and which ones you don't. Um, an example would be, you know, if you look at ride sharing, most of the profits in the ride-sharing world uh, weren't in the U.S., uh, they weren't in China. Um, they were literally in the secondary cities of Brazil uh, and Latin America. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of structural reasons. You have a thriving middle-class, upper-middle class. You have, you know, uh, just super congested cities, super concentrated cities. And you have super high unemployment and a ready pool of drivers. And so those markets came together in a much more balanced, much more efficient way um, than, you know, a crazy market like San Francisco. Um, so it really, those are, I think, some of the some of the key insights and kind of key learnings. And we got advanced enough and I, you know, worked sort of at different phases of kind of all throughout the scale of ride sharing and delivery. And, you know, sort of the last couple of years, we've gotten super, super planful. So, you know, if I look at sort of how my team and I launched Brazil and scaled up Brazil at 99 taxis, we had sort of, we were at a point where we could plan every city launch long in advance. We sort of had a very detailed battle plan and how we were going to take most of the market share back from Uber. We ended up taking... 30, 40% of the market back from Uber wow. in just a few months of launching. That was all entirely by design and sort of putting the right teams together and the right battle plan together to go out and launch cities in a very efficient way. I think that's really what, you know, if you look at the use of capital in some of these bigger platform companies, what it comes down to is that, that sort of scale up and not doing launches and running cities in an unprofitable way. And we were able to avoid most of it. Well, that's a brilliant insight. It, it sounds like as you were do with 99, you, you started with a, an insight and then executed on it. And it was extremely profitable where a lot of other companies, especially ones that have 
uh, received a ton of VC backing. They've got a huge war chest. Maybe they don't start with an insight. They've got an idea, but they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to test it and see if it works. Well, you can burn through a ton of capital testing out ideas that don't work, that, that fail, correct? That's right. We were... We were we set out to launch cities that were going to be immediately profitable in the most efficient way, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and you know and and God bless the other startups that may have been out there that you know needed to get to volume no matter what. Um, you just um, it's 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 really tough, and I think the challenge of doing a scale up where there isn't a clear path to profitability is you do, you get eventually to that, you know, down cycle and capital, you know, that challenging fundraise, you get to whatever point where the bill finally comes and you haven't yet figured out how you're going to get to profitability and, and a sustainable model. And I think that's really, if you look at most of the backlash and sort of, you know, some of the, some of the negative experiences around unicorns and some of the platform companies, that's the situation that they got themselves into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we maybe a luxury, uh, you know, good luck, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the markets that we were in. Um, but, uh, you know, definitely if I sort of translate that also to my current company and what we're building at Shift One, we are, we are looking only at markets and we're only running in geographies and with clients where we've got a sustainable business model and we've got a path to profitable growth. Um, if it's not, we don't get involved with it in the first place and we you know, leave it to a competitor or somebody else to try to try to solve. Yeah, you may say, well, that, that, that sounds like a great idea. I know that there's one person that wants it or somebody wants us to get in that line of business, but that's not part of the strategic plan right now. We're going to, yeah. as Steve Jobs said, I'm more proud of the things I said no to, right? Than the, the things I said yes to. And uh, so we're just going to leave that one on the shelf and we're not going to deal with it. You know, I was talking with a a good friend of mine who's in private equity and he has had a string of not just home runs, but grand slams. And we were in a small group. We were talking. I was like, what, what, okay, what, what's, what's the magic sauce? What's your secret to this? Right. Are are you just like an incredible operator? Are you just like this world, world world-class technologist? How in the world are you stringing all these together? His comment was very insightful, and it, it strikes me as probably one of the secrets to your success. He just said, you know what, Bob? I think I figured out how to pick the right company that was about ready to you know, go through this massive transformation. And you know, so he, he had his insight, which helped him in the picking right, of the, of the, the company that he was going to go work for next. You're having insights on where you're going to deploy your time, uh, capital, resources, as what what's the matrix or the framework that you use? How do you uh, look at all the information and come to the various insights that you do within your career, and specifically right now with Shift One? Yeah, hundred percent. So you know, um, a KPI, a sort of north star for me for the team is we're definitely looking at our GMV to burn ratio. So it's 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 a you know, a, just a very clean capital efficiency, capital deployment metric. Um, so, you know, um, we talk about it specifically as a ratio, you know, oh, that's a market we think we can get to 20x or that's a market, um, you know, that's really challenging and it's only going to be 1x. 
Meaning, right, for a million dollars invested, I get a million dollars of recurring GMV. Mm -hmm. um, would be a 1x, a 20x would be I invested a million dollars and I have a $20 million GMV business. Um, and if you look at the most efficient launches and the most efficient kind of marketplaces that are out there, they tend to cluster, you know, 10 to 20 on the really sustainable, nice businesses. Um, and then there are a ton of businesses I would never invest in that are down around one. Or if you look at um, some of the labor marketplaces that are out there, um, you know, some of some of the, the short term gig marketplaces that are out there, the ratio is even below one. Oh, wow. Um, so it's really, you know, that's the overall the metric that says, you know, if you're going to get to kind of escape velocity and get a really nice scale or, or, or not. Um, and if we can't, you know, we're thinking about a business plan, evaluating a couple of different business plans, entering a new country, taking on some new clients, we look at those ratios and um, sort of make our decisions from there. I mean, obviously we're working on unit economics and profitability of that GMV, but on, you know, kind of the most brute force metric, it's, you know, how efficient is the launch. Um, the other thing I should say is, you know, part of our secret sauce too is, I think we apply in these businesses, we apply a couple of the best sort of practices and um, cultural aspects of, of the technology world, which is like, you know, we, in running our operations, we set everything up as a hill climbing process. Um, and one of our mantras is the operation has to be better this week than it was last week. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, sort of, open end in the early days of an operation, you know, we're starting it out, we're not really sure about these different parameters, we're testing some different things. Uh, we just look for a week over week improvement. And when you start adding together one or 2% or 5% week over week improvement, uh, by the time you pull your head up, you know, um, you've 10x this year, or you've 12x this year. So I think that's a really big component in running your operations such that teams have that control and they have that clarity of mission and frankly, the freedom to do the experimentation that's required to get better every week. Um, I think that's really fundamental and something that, you know, I've definitely practiced throughout all my teams. Um, I think another big piece of it is just a bias for automation and anything that, you know, is a process that gets done a couple of times, we ask ourselves internally, what are we doing to automate it? Um, you know, what's the most efficient way uh, to get this back office process off a bunch of people's plates so that they can go work on higher value activity. And so there's kind of this natural progression as we're scaling the business to just keep on, keep on automating things uh, internally and in terms of our platform as we're rolling it out. I love it. Do you guys employ uh, Agile uh, in your building and you have like scrums and things along those lines, those, those, the scrum cycles? Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I'm probably not unique in this, but definitely in my companies, um, the we align the processes between the business and technology teams so that they're on the same calendar, the same cadence. So if the tech team is running, you know, weekly scrum, bi-weekly scrum, then we run weekly or bi-weekly scrum on the business side. And it just helps with product releases, with market entries, with field engineering tasks, with all of the kinds of things, um, you know, that otherwise would lead to communication issues and just challenging, you know, and just frankly overhead to try to coordinate everybody. 
so that alignment in terms of process and methodology is fundamental for us. And then um, we tend to use the same tools, whatever our ticketing, you know, task management tool is in engineering, we use it also on the business side um, so that everybody is kind of has the transparency of everything that's going on inside the company and, you know, is speaking kind of the same tool language and is able um, to kind of asynchronously keep track of stuff, right? I can just watch a bunch of engineering tasks if I work in customer service. I don't actually need to go to meetings to find out developments. I can just watch the engineers completing them, uh, you know, or vice versa. If I'm an engineer working on a particular deployment in a particular client, I can just watch, uh, you know, the business completing some of those tasks. So I think those things are really important. They're just, they're, they're, they're more foundational. They're more, you know, kind of hygiene items, but I think super important in, in, in terms of being able to run a really efficient and fast organization. Well, there's a lot of talk today about what is going on in Silicon Valley. Uh, Mark Benioff uh, just released a, a memo, I think that was leaked to the public and has been met with a lot of fanfare where he's trying to get people to come back to Salesforce. You've got Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk has laid off a lot of folks and trying to bring people back into the headquarters. And you know, coming out of you know, the post-COVID world, there's a lot of workers who want to be, continue to work remotely You've got CEOs that are wanting to bring people back into a uh, more of a corporate environment to have more hands-on, more culture building. Uh, it's a it's a pretty an interesting wrestling match at the moment. It strikes me as I'm listening to you talk that you've probably got a pretty diverse and remote workforce uh, uh, all over the place. I know I do, and I'm a, a, a different style company than what you're currently running, but how, give me some ideas of what are the things that you are employing, strategies that you have to continue to build culture, to have people, you know, connected, uh, to, you know, build this esprit de corps with a, you know, remotely separated workforce? Well, a big part, it, it, thanks for the question. Um, and I think it gets, you know, kind of right to, to what's going on in our society today. Um, you know, a big part of when we were starting out a few years ago, just prior to the pandemic launching this company, um, we would have, if you had pulled the team, we would have said one of the key early differentiators was our culture on the ground. And and if you look at at Uber and you know for all the the press and you know all the headlines, um, one of the real bright spots in Uber was the ground culture, was the operations teams, was the field operations teams. Um, some of the most dedicated, some of the most ethical and straight up folks that wanted to change the world that I've ever had the privilege of working with. And we had we had that kind of culture where if somebody needed help, they had a plane load of help and, and all kinds of folks just trying to jump in, and, mm. you know, right down to, you know, our day to day and our dynamics in the office. And, you know, if we needed to show up at 4 a.m., we showed up at 4 a.m. And, and we did a great job with it. Um, that was the early culture of our company. And we were doing our first deployments in light industrial and we would show up and people were like, wow, you know, your teams come in and everybody has their head high and everybody is proud and humble and doing a good job. Um, and what was kind of so jarring in the early days of the pandemic was like, oh my God, how are we gonna do that? Um, you know, and, and, and sort of, 
get that right, esprit de corps together, get that right early team culture at each of our deployments so that our clients really get to feel that and so that our, our workforce has um, you know, that kind of, of motivation and, and job satisfaction. We've been able to, to do it. We have off the charts job satisfaction and we have great ratings if you, you know, sort of, uh, you know, been following that kind of stuff. Um, but it's been a lot more difficult just holding everything together. And I think, you know, thank God we're not commuting um, because we need all that extra time to have all kinds of extra contact with our workers and with our professionals that are in different parts of the country. Um, those are the extra Zoom calls, those are the extra phone calls. And that's really what we're using that time for. That's great. Um, you know, for the, for the kind of core engineering team, the core operations team, you know, us folks that, you know, are, are you know, very experienced in, in startups and things, we're used to kind of working by phone at all hours. And, you know, uh, so for us, there wasn't a big change, um, but it's really on that front line where it is just a very different world. Yeah. Um, we think eventually, I mean, you know, not to get too science fiction-y, but, you know, I think there's, there's a world where um, part of our machine operation and our field engineering workforce becomes more remote mm -hmm. uh, because, frankly, the machines are then better instrumented um, with a little bit of AR technology. You know, there's, there's, there, there's more of that kind of capability where um, you can see just kind of right around the corner where we might be doing a lot of machine operation um, in, in that modality. And I, I think, you know, it's, we're thinking about it with our platform. We're not specifically building product in that direction yet, but um, it's kind of a natural extension of where we are right now to be able to open up those jobs to folks. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it's a, such an interesting time for us to be living. You take a look at, you know, historically how the world changed at these various inflection points and I would say work, right? Work and then life. And there's no doubt that we're living through that right now. The uh, inflection points of AI. I mean, every morning I wake up and I'm hearing something new. I mean, the, the, the last few days it's you know, been chat GBT, GPT that's been, you know, you know all, all over the media and how that's go that automation is going to change everything. And I think the, the way in which we work, the way in which we live is changing. There's no way of going back to pre-COVID. The genie is out of the bottle. And there, there's uh, a certain demographic of people and there's a certain demographic of job that it's going to go remote. And I'm listening to more and more uh, CEOs and business leaders say, look, yeah, here's my, you know, th this is what we're doing and it works for us. And so it just... It, but it's just a, such an interesting time for us to be living and to be creating and to be remaking the world all around us. I love it. Yeah, 100%. Well, you know, one of the things that I've been asking people, I want to uh, make sure that folks know how to get in touch with you and follow you on Twitter and any of the socials and how they can go out there and keep track of what's going on with uh, Shift One. So let's make sure that we give them all of those things. And of course, they will be uh, in the show notes. But uh, final two questions for you. Um, I, what are some of the, the the great books that you have read in your career that have um, you know just been really great resources for you, Hel helped you along in your career? Is there anything that you would recommend young people who are starting their career, maybe mid-career professionals that are pivoting and taking you know leaps like you have done in your career? What what great resources would you recommend? 
Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, I think there are, there are so many great books out there. Um, I think Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm uh, is important for anybody in technology or anybody thinking about getting into technology. It really describes um, product market fit in a way, product market fit and scaling the company in a way um, that that few other resources do. Um, I, you know, I, and it really doesn't matter if you're a, a marketer, a salesperson, uh, um, you know, a potential founder, or an engineer. Um, that's a that's a great resource. Um, I think on, you know, capital management and capital is a piece of this. We all, you know, have to manage capital as as entrepreneurs. Um, probably the McKinsey book Valuation mm. uh, is one that's kind of. You know, it's a perennial favorite, um, uh, you know, however, a lot of folks starting out haven't read it, haven't really gotten into it. And I think it's it's one of the places where I look, you know, I was coming more from a, from a math background. Um, it's a book that gives you deep, deep insight into, uh, you know, really the mechanics underneath accounting mm -hmm. and underneath corporate finance. And you know, under a bunch of macro, micro, uh, company level uh, financial topics, and it gives you really a tool set for being able to analyze any company at any stage. Um, I think there are the Bell books, which are Professor Bell at Harvard. Uh, two books. Um, one is called Decision Making Under Certainty. The other one is called Decision Making Under Cert Under Uncertainty. Oh wow! Um, those are those are two classics that never, never grow old, and they um, they have a bunch of case studies and problems that that folks can work through. They lend themselves also really to you know folks with an autodidactic tendency out there that might want to get into that and, and learn some skills around that. Um, and they just teach you, I think, just some high level frameworks for thinking about business problems. You know, this is one where best chance we're going to have an educated guess and here's the math under that educated guess okay. or you know this is actually one where it's a linear programming problem and we're going to know the exact answer and here are the steps uh and kind of the algorithm to get to the exact answer okay. uh those are those are a couple of, of great ones that i'd mention also um my personal reading these days is a little bit more varied i really like fiction so um you know i think uh cormac mccarthy and his two new books are are kind of where i am right now yes, right. those are the ones on on my nightstand and i'm I'm really enjoying i'm in the first one uh the passenger okay um which uh you know is sort of the story of uh, a mathematician brother, uh, and the other book is called Stella Maris, and that's the story of his sister. Um, okay. and, and those are two that have come out. And I think what uh, just recently and what's so interesting about him, of course, is McCarthy is now 89 years old. Um, I think you're right. Very differently. It's interesting to see his transformation uh, throughout his career and sort of you know, uh, at this age and how he's thinking about problems to see his style change and sort of his approach to fiction change uh, quite a bit in these last years. And I think it's been, it's been more than a decade, I think 15 or 16 years uh, since his last book. So it's a, a real contrast um, to, his, to his previous writing. I can't wait to get those. You get, you've given me a couple books here that I don't have in my library, so I'm I'm super oh, excited fantastic. about this. Yeah, <laughs> I always love it when someone's giving me some new material. So this is great. 
do you find uh, that reading fiction at night before you go to bed, it just helps you kind of get off the topic of business? And I've had a number of leaders here recently that have said, yeah, I'm kind of reading this fiction book or that fiction book. A lot of times it's in the evening. For me, I find that my mind, I will just grind on stuff unless I can figure out a way to kind of like deprogram it and say, okay, I need to like uh, decompress and think about something else to allow my you know mind to come down and you know finally get a state of you know good sleep. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, whatever works for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for anybody, I think, I think everybody's a little bit different in that regard. Um, for me, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm super interested in the human condition. And mm -hmm. I think all of the things that that fiction opens up to you and it's just, you know, to state the obvious, right. The possibilities in fiction are endless. The mm -hmm. possibilities in nonfiction are constrained of our current understanding of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, anything can happen in fiction and it allows authors to set up um, just very interesting perspectives on, on, on human relations and, and human psychology. So for that reason, you know, I get interested in the topic and, you know, when the time comes to sleep, I'm able to sort of uh, you know, close yeah. the day uh, with those thoughts. So it doesn't, doesn't interrupt my sleep at all. That's great. Well, fi final question. This is something I've been asking leaders recently, N not just domestically, but also uh, folks in England and uh, folks in, in Canada. But we live, we're living in some very interesting times. And you and I have just been talking about how exciting it can be. Uh, but it's also, you know, it can be uh, concerning. There can be times of anxiety for people as we're navigating changes in the economy. And then uh, there's, you know, the wars and unsettling things happening in Ukraine, things that are happening in the South China Sea. You've got, you know, uh, domestic issues that you know, can keep people up late at night. Imagine that you are the American president and you are about ready to give a State of the Union address to the American people. What would you say? I, you know, I think, I think it's a great question. And um, if you look at where my answer or, or my challenge and, and solution to the extent I could to the American people would be, um, I think we're at this point in the technology cycle where, um, you know, we haven't had major large scale technological breakthroughs in quite some time. Uh, we're still primarily living in, you know, a number, if you look at the big technology companies that are out there, the large employers, uh, they're 20 or 30 years old. Uh, if they're not 20 or 30 years old, the foundation that they built their company on is 20 or 30 years old. Wow. Um, you know, the transformation of personal computers, uh, the transformation of cloud computing, uh, mobile computing. Uh, and mobile networks. Um, I think we're overdue uh, for a you know the next large technology wave. I think we're very late in this tech cycle. Um, if I were American president addressing the American people, I would have programs, and my emphasis would be on uh, accelerating the next waves of technology. And I think there's a lot that government can do there. Um, you know, it's not sort of by accident that some of the you know fastest development that we've seen in space technologies has been because of SpaceX. And you know, that I think the approach and the lens there is very informative because if you look, you know, or at least my reading of sort of how Elon Musk has approached the problem, he said, 
you know, fundamentally, we got to get the unit economics to a place where they work. Mm -hmm. So we need reusable rockets and we need to get to super high volume. And if we get to super high volume, which we can kind of bootstrap on passenger flights and freight flights, um, kind of in near Earth orbit, then we get to a place where rocket technology gets cheap enough where we can start to get out into, you know, putting more sophisticated operations on the moon, which then gets us out to other planets in the asteroid belt, which, you know, really is the seed of a whole new amazing industry that we're just around the corner from. What Changes does it depend everything. on? It, right? It depends on a little bit of, of you know, initial legwork to get to that high volume in the core technology. How many other technology problems do we have that are just like that? You know, and if we if we just got to critical mass on some fundamental technologies, you know, that could open up an entirely new technology wave that would be on par with the internet and some of the other things that we've seen throughout history. So I don't know if it's a domestic peace corps around that, if it's, you know, domestic programs where the government is, you know, helping to get the demand volume to a place where the new technology can can really take off. But I, I would go through and look at different core kind of foundational technologies um, and look for ways to accelerate them. That would be my state of the union address. Well, one thing I know that if you don't run for president, we need you advising the White House. I love your thought process there. We, we need that level of thinking and strategy in a big way. I love the idea that there are all sorts of technologies that are ready for a renaissance, uh, the next wave of technology to take over and, and change the world and, and solve the world's problems. Jason Radisson, you are the founder and CEO of Shift One, and you, my friend, are solving the world's largest employment gaps with technology, and that is a big issue. So you've got your hands around an Elon Musk-style problem, and I'm looking forward to watching you solve it. And uh, I, this has been so enjoyable. This is I, I've learned a lot. I've taken a lot of notes today, and I know that our audience is going to find this be very informative and useful as well. So thank you so much for your time and your generosity. Thanks so much, Bob. I really enjoyed being on the show. Well, please come back and give us uh, updates and highlights of things that are changing in the economy as well. Fantastic. I'd love to. Yes, sir. All right. Have a good one. You as well. Bye-bye. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Jason Radisson, for taking time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That's always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we will be back next week with more.